Well, amen. It is great to have you with us. And that song we just sang, the holy, 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 we get a, a front row seat to heaven where the, the spiritual beings like the seraphim are singing that before God today in our passage. If you weren't with us last week, Drew started us off a brand new series called Isaiah. Did a fantastic job talking about God as a fire that purifies us and purges us. And then I got, like, chapter 5, the lump of coal. Now wait till you see this coal today. It's unbelievable, this passage in chapter 6 and chapter 5, the, the grapevine today. One of the themes of Isaiah we're going to look at is the idea that God rebukes in this book. Then he always says there's a remnant he's going to keep his promise to. And then he's going to restore that remnant, not based on their faithfulness to him, but his faithfulness to them. They call the Isaiah the mini-Bible because it has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah is divided into two sections. First section is 39 chapters, focusing on the law and breaking of the law. Then 27 chapters, just like the New Testament has 27 books, focusing on God as a suffering servant and bringing his kingdom. Hmm. Right in that hinge point between those two chapters is chapter 40, which begins the move into the second movement. And in chapter 40 it says, comfort my people, yes, comfort my people. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, that her sin, her iniquity can be pardoned. Verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The exact way the New Testament begins with John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. So it's an amazing book that actually gives us all kinds of insights into the entire Bible, all contained within the Old Testament. And the reason we're calling this Isaiah's comforter is because they're going to go through a very difficult time. And yet God wants to comfort them with all these different images from the book, from the purging fire to the suffering servant to the kingdom to come. All of these images are things we can wrap ourselves up in when we go through difficulty as well. And the main theme of this book as well, from a, a big picture, is that you can get through anything now if you know you have something certain later. And these are certain promises and certain images we can hold on to as we go through difficulty. All right, so we're going to start today with the grapes and the coal. So uh, uh, puck, pucker up buttercup because we are going to kiss the coal today and we are going to get entwined in the vine. We're going to find that those coals from the very throne room of God are going to come and touch the lips of Isaiah. And then we're going to get entwined in the vine. So we'll begin with the vine. And, and as we study these two things together today, I hope you're going to find that you can be cleaner than you ever thought possible because of that coal. And you can grow deeper than you ever thought possible because of the vine. Let's start with the vine. The grapevine. Remember his work, God's work in your life. And if you want to grow, abide in his love. It begins with a song, a song and a parable. First one of chapter 5. Let me sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So I won't sing it to you, but you can imagine it's being sung. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fruitful hill. So he says, of all the places, I looked around the world and I found that just the perfect hill and the perfect spot to plant a vineyard. 
And it's going to be a metaphor for Israel, a perfect place where Asia and Africa and Europe all come together. He picked that spot for them. He wants a very fruitful hill. It had the right soil to produce great vines and great grapes. So he dug it out. He cleared out its stones. And you can just picture God digging and tilling the ground to prepare it for this harvest. Personally going and pulling out the small rocks, the big rocks. The, the, the work he's doing in the soil to prepare this for the crop. And then, of all the vines he could have put there, he took his choices. He planted it with the choicest vine. The best vine in the best place, in the best soil, prepared by the vin- vine vineyard owner himself. And then he got everything ready. He built a tower in its midst. And, and they put, put towers in the midst of a vineyard for a couple of reasons. One, you could observe the vineyard from up there. You could see maybe the foxes over here. We need, we need a little bit of some, some vines are kind of falling down over there. It gave you a view. It also got to see a distance. Are there any bad guys coming to steal our vineyard? You know, prepare yourself. So he said, I built a tower in the midst of it so I could watch the growth. I made a wine press in it because God says he expected it, his vineyard, to bring forth good grapes. That makes sense. Good grapes. But instead of bringing forth good grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. Wild grapes. Well, what's the big deal? Grapes a grape, right? Not so much. In fact, here's a, a wild grape. What do I know? Looks like grapes to me. He said, what's being produced by my people Israel? It looks like it would be good. Their religious ritual, their religious activity, there's no lack of religious activity as we heard last week in chapter 1. But their religious activity is not the fruit that comes from my spirit flowing through them. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. Instead, the wild grapes of toxic religion produces fear, it produces self-righteousness, it produces self-condemnation. Wild grapes. A little bit about wild grapes. Number one, they are an invasive weed. If you ever lived down in Atlanta, this is kudzu, my friends. This is kudzu. It grows and it invades and it destroys. And it just keeps growing, by the way. And it covers everything. Just like toxic moralism, toxic religion spreads out in the name of Jesus and just makes everybody not like Jesus anymore, makes everybody not like religion anymore because it doesn't taste right, it's a weed, not a vineyard. So a little bit about wild grapes. Number one, they are considered weeds. They've got these sticky tendrils that latch onto other trees or other bushes which allow it to do what you just saw. It's considered a parasite, grows up to 50 feet, It deprives all the plants around it of sunlight so they die. It looks good on the outside, but when you taste a wild grape, oh, bitter on the inside. To which Isaiah says, in the name of God, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have, done, have I done to my vineyard that I have not already done in it? Why then, when I expect it, God expects us to grow, not just get to heaven, but to grow and to produce his fruit in our life and to be a blessing to the world. I expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Judge. And the rhetoric answer is, 
You got the best place and the best land, and you tilled it right. You got everything prepared. You got the choice fine. You did it all right, God. The rhetoric answer is, I guess you got to start over. You got to burn down all those weeds. All those wild grapes have taken over. And I can just hear Isaiah communicating the heart of God with sorrow in these next few verses. God says, I will take down its hedge. And this vineyard, which is Israel, will be burned. I'm going to break down its walls. And it's going to get trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned anymore. It shall not be dug anymore. But there will come up briars and thorns. And I will also command the clouds that no rain comes upon it. God is saying, my choice vine, I'm a business owner, I had a dream, I had a plan, I did everything right, and it all fell apart, and I'm just going to have to burn it all down and start over again. That's the rebuke, but he's going to keep a remnant. And whenever Jesus is speaking in the New Testament, he's always referencing Torah. He's always referencing the Old Testament. He's a Jewish rabbi. And maybe you see hints of John 15 here, a pretty famous passage where Jesus talks about a vineyard. And Jesus says... I am the true vine. There's a lot of other vines that can help you grow wild grapes. But I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Sounds like Isaiah 5. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, wild grapes, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word I've spoken to you. I've already, you've already gotten to heaven, so to speak, in our words. You've already become a follower of mine. I've cleaned you. But you're not producing the, group, the, the, the grapes you need. So I'm going to prune your life so you can produce the best grapes. But, well, how do I do that, God? Well, he says, well, you've got to abide in me and I in you. So two words here. The first word is this idea of takes away. So this word is used two different ways in the New Testament in the Greek word. One is that you just take whatever's not producing fruit and you throw it away. Another way that word is used is of a vine dresser. And when a, a grape has fallen onto the ground or it's not in the ideal situation, the word can mean to lift up. Jesus' way in the parable of the feeding of 5,000, where the disciples lift up the food that's left over. That the vine dresser, when he sees the grapes not producing fruit, he takes away, he takes them away from the dirt and he lifts them up and he puts them back in the ideal spot to produce fruit. That God is not just going to throw you away when you make one mistake. If anything, we learn from 2 Kings. He tries and tries and tries and tries and tries and tries and tries. But God is looking to lift you up and put you in a place to produce fruit. And it doesn't mean you've got to try hard. Drew mentioned this a few weeks ago in our foodie series. You know, a grape doesn't go, grow! No. A grape simply abides in the vine. And by abiding in the vine, it naturally grows. So don't work harder to be a good Christian. Get closer to Jesus, and the growth will come naturally. And that's why this word abide literally means, it's the Greek word meno, which means to continue to dwell in, stay in, or be near. So really, if you have a fruit problem, it's really a root problem. I'm not abiding in Christ enough. I'm not you know, tackling that with Jesus. I'm not getting close to that. Interesting, when my wife and I were uh, taking a trip to Israel several years ago, we got a chance to go to Turkey. And we visited all the different cities that the letters to Revelation were written to. 
And as uh, we went there, we were in Sardis, and it's just amazing. There is this monstrous mountain that's probably, I don't know, 70 stories tall, maybe 50. And there's a castle built up there. It's all crumbled down now. And it overlooks all this incredible vineyard, still there today, row after row after row. And while we were there, a group of folks from Horizon are in this vineyard, and our leader was discussing how vine dressers would come and prune and, and cut up areas. You're like, that looks pretty good. Don't prune that. Oh, I wanted that. But the vine dresser knows what to cut and what to prune to bring about the best fruit. He also mentioned this, this concept here from John 15 that he doesn't just kind of throw you away when you don't produce fruit. He cuts away the parts that are getting in the way and he will lift you up to put you in a place to grow. And I remember at the end of that uh, de- well, devotional we had for about an hour, many of us were just talking. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to connect with Christ? How do we do this? And my wife was getting kind of emotional. and she's, I'm usually the more emotional of the two of us. And I said, hey, what's going on? She said, man, I just meant so much to me that God will lift me up to help me produce the fruit I need. It just, I just sometimes feel like, you know, not doing the right thing, not going the right way. God's just going to discard me. Because my wife grew up in kind of a very Christian, very Bible-based, moralistic system that said, you know, you do better, you work hard, you check the list, and it will happen. It wasn't this, this vine dresser who really will work generation after generation alongside of us to produce fruit. There's a uh, famous vine dresser in Napa Valley in the 1970s. His name was uh, Gustavo Brambola. And he kind of brought two techniques to the Napa Valley to popularize. One was called uh, um, green harvesting. And they still do this today, which is you've got all these crops, you know, all these vineyards ready to go, but you start actually cutting off these beautiful green clumps of, of, of grapes. Like, hey, that could be something. Hey, it could be something. But by cutting off the, the green harvesting, the, the extra plumps, there's more juice and there's more life into the group, into the, the grapes that are left. Prudent harvesting and green harvesting was a way to, even early on when the sprouts come up, you would trim it off so just one or two buds would occur and it would shoot up faster. And I think for many of us, you're like, you know, God, why, why are you let me go through difficulty? Why'd you take that away? Why'd you cut that off? Why? 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 But God is asking us, will we trust him that the vine dresser knows whatever he's cut off, whatever he's removed, hey, that looked pretty good, that could have been something, that we trust that the vine dresser is is removing things, harvesting things from our life in order to produce the best kind of fruit. So what does it look like for you to abide in him, to make room for God in your life in a significant way? What does it look like for you to get entwined in the vine? And sometimes that means doing it with other people. You know, Ken Kington's here this weekend, and, and one of the things he's going to do is uh, start our authentic manhood. And he's going to talk about what does it look like to just kind of get reconnected to God and understand his purpose for you, his design for you as a man. And how do we as a, f- you know, you, you, grapes don't grow by themselves, right? They grow in clumps. They grow in clusters. How can we get around other men who are trying to figure out how to abide in Christ and how to lead well and how to live well and how to love well? So maybe you want to be part of that, getting twined and divine with other people and come this Sunday night, starts tonight or, or tomorrow morning. Or maybe, as I was mentioning, the, uh, the insidious weeds, you, 
immediately I thought of our, our ecology project. I mean, our ecology stewardship project, it's what they've been doing. They've been removing honeysuckle for the last couple months. It's an invasive weed on our property. So that the natural beauty of Ohioan beauty, Ohioan um, vegetation can grow here. So if you walk out on our property, you can see the amazing work. So maybe for you being entwined in the vine is going and removing those weeds and being reminded, God, I want you to remove those weeds in my life and do it alongside other people. Get entwined in the vine, chapter 5. Which transitions us to chapter 6. What does it mean to kiss the coal? To have an encounter with God. Isaiah is going to have this incredible encounter with God. God's presence, a vision of who he is and all his glory. And this vision of God's glory, this encounter with God's glory, gives him tenacity to face the grind of what's coming. It's going to give him the grief of, oh, we've fallen so far short of God. And yet when he's just about to be crushed in his grief, he's going to experience grace like you've never seen before in the Bible. It is just an incredible vision of grace. And then it will give him the grit to sign up for an unbelievably difficult, impossible assignment. And what drove all of that was a personal encounter with the glory of God. Let's start with a grind. We, we pick up on chapter 5, coming out of that vineyard. I'm going to have to destroy my vineyard because after generations, i got to start over and burn out all that, that religiosity. In that day, Isaiah 5, the day's coming. It's not here yet, but I'm warning you one more time, warning you and wooing you. In that day, they will roar against them. Who's they? Drew mentioned it last week. The Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to roar against you. They're going to come against my vineyard like a roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold a darkness and sorrow. The light is going to be darkened by clouds. If you remember in our Old Testament summary, we have Saul, then David, then Solomon. Kingdom gets divided into the north and the south. Remember our study of 2 Kings. And this is Isaiah warning right here to all those kings. Here comes the flood. Here comes the grind. Assyria. And Babylon is coming to grind you down. They're going to burn down the vineyard. They're going to let all that religious activity that wasn't connected to me burn up so I can start over with a new remnant that can be restored. And rather than taking that moment one last time, leaning into God's presence, one more time saying, God, we need you. I got it. Okay, okay, yes, we, we need to get entwined with you. Yes, we don't want the vineyard burned. Instead of leaning into God, they just take another step back, another step back, and another step back away from God's presence. What they need is to encounter God's presence, to make room for God. Instead, they push God out. And this is going to cause Isaiah incredible grief. Even as he sees the throne room of God's glory. And here's how it begins. It's just unbelievable, chapter 6. It starts off, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He has this vision of God seated on the throne. All the kingdoms of the world, you got all kinds of chaos. You even got the chaos in our world today and the uncertainty. God is not worried. God's not chewing on his fingernails. God is seated on the throne in control of everything. And he says, I saw the Lord in all his glory. And here's what's amazing. In John chapter 12, John picks up this very concept from this very passage and says, he didn't just see Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, 
John tells us in this moment he saw the glory of Jesus. John in talking about Jesus says, therefore, quoting Isaiah, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things, John says, Isaiah spoke when they saw his, speaking of Jesus, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Isaiah has a vision not just of Yahweh, but of Jesus. And and you'll see how it shows up in the text. So he sees God and keeps going. So I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple in every direction. And above it stood these seraphim, these spiritual beings, and, and, and one had, each one had six wings. With two it covered its face, with two it covered its feet, and with two it flew. And they were, these beings were around God's presence. They were crying out to one another. And even before he gets the full vision, as it begins, he just begins to experience this grief of, oh my goodness, that's God's holiness, that's God's righteousness, that's God's standard. Oh, I do not live up to that. Our people do not live up to that. He's grieved at how far they have fallen, that they have replaced this God with these piles of rocks they call idols. So what does that look like? What a picture of the seraphim look like? Well, the problem is no one knows what a seraphim looks like because the only description in the whole Bible is right here. So we know they got feet. We know they got a head. We know they got six wings. That's all we really know. One of the hints here is the word seraph, used of seraphim, every other time it's used in the Bible, here's the passages there, it actually is used to talk about fiery serpents. That's also connected to another word, nahash. But every time seraph appears, it's always a fiery serpent. The only time the commentators didn't translate the word, they transliterated the word, meaning they took the, the Hebrew word and just gave you the letters for it, was here. Because they're like, well, the the being can't be like a serpent or a twisted snake. And and whenever you're describing spiritual beings, there's kind of a little bit of a metaphor there because you're trying to describe things beyond our world. But I take the view that it's more like a twisting snake than it is like, well, like you see in in artwork. You ever seen a, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary, here's what you get. Is that going to create a lot of awe to you? Like the, the floating precious moments doll? It's like a garbage pail kid when I was a kid or something. I mean, this, this, is, this is not inspiring uh, vision of God. So if we just take the views of six wings and head and feet, I take the view with that twisting like a flame, twisting like a fiery servant, it probably looked more like this. Wouldn't die in the sill. Like a Chinese dragon, a spiritual being with, with wings and hands. Now that's going to make me fall down and go, whoa, it's me. These are the creatures around God's throne room. Another little feedback to that is that um, the Egyptians had a god named Wajet, a winged serpent. If you've ever seen Pharaoh, he wore this uh, helmet. It's always got that snake on the front. That's Wajet. And Wajet was a winged serpent who protected the deity that was God, that was their god, which was Pharaoh. So my view is that Satan's never had an original idea in his life and that he just cheats and uses what God was doing and makes his own version of it. Don't know. Wouldn't die in this hill. But whatever this is, these seraphim, these spiritual beings are circling around the he- God's presence. And he is struck by it. And he's realizing, I can't live up to this. I'm not going to be like this. 
I, 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 am, I am undone, he's going to say. But in the middle of that moment, he's going to have unbelievable experience with God's grace. Look what happens next. These spiritual beings are crying out, whatever they look like. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with the glory. And the posts of the door of the temple in this vision are shaken. Not by the voice of God, but by the voice of just the creatures of God. And the house was filled with smoke. And in, the, in, in light of this vision of God, he, he, he must have fallen to his knees and says, Woe is me! I am undone! I can't live up to that standard. I am so unclean. Look how he says it. Because I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Worse than that, I'm grieved that my people, <laughs> I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord of hosts. And just as he's crushed with grief that he could never live up to the standards of God, that people could never, never live up to the standards of God, that they've just done everything wrong for so long, he gets to experience God's grace. For it's here, one of those seraphim that he saw is going to bring a fiery coal of grace into his life. The next verse. Then one of those seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal. Oh, the coal, the purity of God's righteousness. Don't get that near me. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of that righteousness. He had taken it from the tongs of the very altar of God. And he brought that fiery call closer and closer to me. No, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he touched it to my lips. Psst. And when he touched my mouth with it, he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. No kidding. And now your iniquity is taken away. Your defilement did not contaminate it. It's cleansing filled you. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Hebrew word here, um, kepar, which is to be covered in pitch, like, like Noah covered the, the, the pitch of the ark with, with, with tar, it just covered it, it sustained it, it sealed it. You are now sealed and covered by, you couldn't make yourself holy, so God made you holy. So what does the word holy mean? What does it mean to be holy? Well, I think for many of us, when we think of holy, we think of singing the song, holy, holy, holy. We think holiness is like, you know, being a good boy. You know, be an angel, do the right thing, listen to the good voice. The word holiness is far more than this. Holiness is more like, like think about our universe. God, God is so different from us, so distinct from us. He is the center of everything, and the sun is different from the earth. It's different from us. It's unique. It's powerful. The God, this king we're talking about, he is the, the master of the universe. And if you think about our sun as a metaphor, the sun is holy compared to us. It's powerful compared to us. It's distinct and different to us. It's unique. It's powerful. It's the very source of life, just like God is. He's holy. And not only is God holy, but all the areas around him are holy. 
And it's out of his goodness, his holiness, that you try to say, hey, let's try and land on the sun, right? You'd say, that's a bad idea. Not because the sun is, is bad, because the sun is so good and holy, you would be disintegrated getting into the presence. And that's the idea the Bible brings up. God's goodness, his purity, his holiness Human beings can't get near him because our defilement, our, our sinfulness, our iniquity, we would, we would be destroyed in his presence. So God made a way in the temple. The priests could bring us into his presence. But if they weren't prepared, they too were in danger of his goodness. So how do you solve this dilemma? How do you be pure, ceremonially pure and morally pure? Well, Isaiah is wrestling with this very thing. And when he sees this vision of God, in the Bible it would say holy, holy would mean emphasis on holy. To be holy, 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 it's the, its own category of holiness. No one's ever been holy like this, which is why he's so struck by this, so like, I'm undone by this. Move away from me. I, I can't be in your presence. When this seraphim shows up and touches him, he's cleansed. And he hears the words from these powerful beings. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And we get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up. And a Jewish rabbi didn't touch defiled things because the defilement would make them unkosher. But Jesus shows up and he touches sick people and, and leprous people and dead people. And rather than their defilement contaminating him, his righteousness spreads to them. They are cleaned. They are healed. They are given life. Because Jesus is the fiery coal from Isaiah. The one that John tells us that he saw. The grace Isaiah didn't earn this cleansing. He didn't earn this purging. He just had an encounter. He made room for God and trusted God, and God cleansed him. God doesn't take saints. He makes saints. And it's out of this experience with God's grace that he is going to sign up for an unbelievably difficult assignment. And that's where we get to what I'm going to call grit. Grit. So he hears the voice now, not of the seraphim now, but of the Lord. Now God, the God of the universe, the master commander of the universe is speaking to him. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Remember John says he's seeing Jesus and his father. And you'll see the spirit of God is in this chapter too. Who will go for us, the triune God? And he's so overwhelmed with God. So overwhelmed with this gift of grace, he says, here am I, send me. Place is about to be destroyed, place is about to be shut down, place is about to be ground through by the Assyrians. I want to be part of that. Really? Well, I want to be part of whatever you want me to do. So God says, all right, go. Tell the people. Keep saying over and over again. They're going, to come, they're going to become callous to your message. You're going to say it so many times, they're going to just become callous. Oh, it's the same old speech and the same old sermon. They're not going to hear it or perceive it, but you keep speaking it. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. They're going to keep on seeing you give sermons, but they're not going to perceive. 
I want you to make the heart of the people dull because you brought it up so many times, wooing and warning, wooing and warning, wooing and warning, that their hearts are heavy and their eyes are shut off because they, when you don't choose to change and repent, your other options become more and more calloused. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. Now, what's God's real heart? He wants them to return and be healed. You'll see that in the metaphor he uses. But because they're refusing to return to me and be healed, they're just going to get more and more callous to my voice. In fact, the very idea of, of grieving the Spirit of God that we hear in the New Testament, that phrase comes from the book of Isaiah. Now, now Isaiah's like, okay, I know I signed up for this. Uh, here am I, send me. How long is it going to be that bad? How long is no one going to respond to my preaching ever? And God says, well, for your entire life. How long are they not going to listen? Until the cities are laid waste and there are absolutely no inhabitants left. When the houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. Swallow hard. Ooh. That's a tough assignment. That's going to require grit. You don't do that because I, I, I'm excited about the lives are going to be changed. Nobody's going to change. I'm excited about how the great feedback I got in the sermon. No one's going to like your sermons. He did it because of his vision of God's glory and his gift of God's grace. Here am I, send me. I want to be part of what that God is doing in the world. And God goes on. He says, the Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, remember, it's rebuke, remnant, restoration. Yet, a tenth will be in it. I will still keep my promises. I will return them, restore them. Like a terabith tree or an oak tree. Whose stump remains when you chop it down. So the holy seed, the promises I gave, the faithfulness I got, the covenant I gave, shall be its stump. And he mentions here a terabith tree. Really fascinating example he gives. Because the terabith tree, many commentators think it's the very, it's also called the tree of Shechem or the oaks of Shechem as well as a terabith tree. That many people think that this very tree he's referencing is the tree that Abraham was under when God gave his covenant to him. So by using the terabith tree, there's several things he's referencing. Number one, they're known for being very, very shady. And the metaphor of a, of a tree with shade is always a symbol of God's kingdom of protection. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a giant tree, and God's going to chop down this tree because you're not giving protection to people the way you should in the kingdom. God is saying, my kingdom is going to be cut down, but it's, it's not gone. It's going to be 70 years of bondage in Babylon, but I'm going to take that stump, and I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham, even though Abraham's descendants didn't keep the promises to me. And from that stump, I'm going to grow back restoration. In fact, the terabith tree was known because a combination of what insects do and what they would do is you would cut into the slits of the bark and there would be this uh, sap that would come out and they would use it for medicine. So this whole idea of him saying, return to me and be healed, then he brings up a tree that they use for medicine and says, you're not accessing the medicine. I'm going to have to chop it down. It's going to take some while to grow back because you've refused to listen to me. It's also interesting too because I think for many of us, if you think about this assignment he signs up for, 
this generation isn't going to get a chance to see God's promise. It's going to be the next generation that sees the shade again, the next generation that feels these benefits again. It's the remnant that gets restored. And often trees in the Bible represent God's promise to the next generation. What does it look like for me not only to invest in my own spiritual growth, make room for God in my own life, but also to create a place for the next generation to know God, to pursue God, and to find God? So what was Isaiah's response to all of this? What does he say when he has this encounter with God? He says, send me. And maybe part of you coming alongside with God, what God's doing here is saying, man, I've been served well here. I have grown well here. I want to serve. I want to be part. God, send me. How can I help greet people at the door? How can I help run some cameras? How can I help prepare some lessons for children? Today, after all three services, we have a, a serving open house in our, in our hearth room. And maybe you want to say, listen, I don't know what I'm, what I'm passionate about or what I'm good at, but I want to tell you what I am passionate about. You tell me what you're good at and, and, and what you need, and let's see if we can serve God together. Where you want me to go, God, I'll serve. What's Isaiah say? Isaiah says simply, send me. Send me. Think of this vision he has of the glory of God. This majestic vision of the king of the universe. How often do I take the majestic king of the universe and ask him to be my personal assistant? Hey, God, I got some things I need you to do, and I kind of got a better idea than you. No, no, no. Instead, you say, God, I will offer my personal assistant to you, the majestic God. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to serve? Here I am. Send me. The band's going to sing this last song, and this is one of my favorite songs. I've been worshiping with this for the last year. It's a song of surrender. It's a song of making room for God in your life, having that genuine encounter with God. And so I want you to stand with me as we sing the song, and I want you to think about this. You don't have to raise your hands, but one of the things that helps me occasionally is when I'm worshiping, I'll put my hands up in the air, especially in a song about surrender. Because surrender is really, you know, when you, when, you, when you come to a foreign power, right, and they're more powerful than you and you surrender, you're like, whoa, uh, I'm not armed. I, I'm submitting to you. Or even like you wave the, the white flag. I want you to think about this song as a way to have an encounter with God. And maybe if you want to even put a hand to the side, just, God, I'm, I'm waving the white flag. I want to surrender to you. You are the majestic God. Here I am. Send me.